All right. right. Hello and <laughs> welcome to the Popcorn Pillow Talk podcast. Can we change the name yet? <laughs> no, no. Let's give you the running joke for a little while. Actually, I I did. I did. Okay, I'm making progress. Making progress. Huge progress here. Um, I saw my roommate the other day and I wanted to get some sketches made up. Might adjust the name accordingly because of it. I don't know. But uh, he was making these cute designs up with popcorn and like people talking, and I don't know. It, I I think it's gonna be kind of cute. Wait, remember remember years years ago, a year ago when he made that one logo for us about like the bat eating popcorn in the cinema. I did think about that. That, was that would be that... cute now because that didn't fit when we were making our logo because it was like mm, this doesn't really work. As like yeah. a Facebook icon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, no, but that it that totally would that that would be kind of cute. That would work now if we put some more texture into it or something because it was still pretty. It was like a couple of lines. I feel like if we had put well, yeah, because he hadn't fully it. digitized it. It was just like sketches. Yeah, but no, the, the popcorn thing he's got is kind of cute, and I mean he's in co-op right now, so it's not like he's doing much else at the moment. But shout out to Isaac. He's, shout out to he's having Isaac. a blast. So, um, so Richard, introduce yourself. Uh, well, my name's Richard. Uh, <laughs> things haven't changed last couple of weeks. Uh, I'm still drinking coffee at all hours of the day. Uh, I'm not eating on this podcast because it's just rude for the ears. I know y'all would hate that. Um, and we got lots of cool stuff to go over today. I don't know. Take it away, Declan. Yeah, I'm Declan. I'm also drinking coffee. Uh, what kind of coffee are you drinking? The Colombian stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I went and bought some new uh, coffee, so I got like a, the Lavazza Gran Selezione or something. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a dark chocolatey Ooh. roast. It's it's quite nice actually. It's nice and smooth. Ooh. Yeah, I'm jealous. I, I could could use some of that right now, dude. Um, it's it's you say that you're just cheap, dude. This is like it's like seven eight bucks a bag right now. Because for how some reason, all the fancy coffee at the grocery stores is on sale. <laughs> how big's a bag? Is it like what three, four hundred grams? Uh, I don't know how how many how many ounces is that? Because the pigs are in ounces. I think it's like a twelve ounce oh, bag. Oh my goodness! Uh, I have to go through my conversion chart. Uh, <laughs> this remi- it's it's like a twelve ounce days. bag. I don't I don't know how many ounces. What's twelve ounces in grams? Twelve. <sighs> ounces uh, my head <laughs> oh it's 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 340 grams okay so it's a quarter pound yeah for our friends down south <laughs> well that's what 12 ounces is because 16 ounces is a pound yeah okay. <laughs> as, as, as an anecdote you can yeah. either keep this in or not my uh so my sister and her boyfriend came over uh for a barbecue and we bought steaks a babby. And my mom went to like the fancy butcher shop in town to buy steaks, and then she was complaining Ooh. about how expensive it was. She was like, it's $100 for all this meat. And we were like, how much did you get? It's like, well, I bought like 14 porterhouse steaks. <laughs> I bought 50 ounces of ribeye and like. Well, of course it's going to cost $100. <laughs> no, 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 no. And then like 42 ounces of strip loin. And I was that's, like, mom, you so bought like steak. six and a half pounds of meat. Of course that's it's going to be. That's a lot of meat. Yeah, I know. If that's not expensive, that's cheaper than going to like the food land. And that's better quality by going to the butcher. No offense to the food land. Like they've got some good stuff. But dude, going to a butcher and getting no, it done no, no, there. No, 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 I'm no. Totally, I'm totally in agreement with you. Like we, it was good quality steak. But it was that's just dope. Like, and she's of course like, it was expensive. expensive. <laughs> and I'm like, you bought enough meat that the five of us didn't finish it all. Oh, yeah. Dude, dude. You said 50 ounces of ribeye and then what? How many strip loins was that? I think it was It was two like big bone-in ribeyes, so it might have been closer oh. to like 40-something ounces. Those and then I think so it was well. like high 40 ounces of strip loin. Oh, yeah, no. They cook really well. They're so nice. They're so they're they're like they're honestly they're they're like the dream steak, especially in the summer. They're so yeah. good. Although I've always been a big fan of a sirloin, just something classic about a good sirloin steak. Yeah. Then you kind of get the like the 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 bits and bobs about how like there's a tip and a top and yeah. there's different ways to cook them. But anyway, that's our steak talk for today. <laughs> what do we got? Hungry. What do we got in our movie news today? Well, uh, I don't have too 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 much going on. I mean, you're talking um, how COVID things are progressing, at least in Canada here. 
Um, yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about that. A lot of stuff is going into stage two. It sounds like a lot of like high density populated areas, like the GTA, haven't quite settled yet. But things like smaller cities and rural areas and most other provinces have seen a decline in, in cases and stuff. So we're noticing most of our drive-ins are opening up, which is super exciting. Uh, uh, a movie I mentioned last week, The Wretched, has become like a staple at like almost every drive-in. Is like the the big horror movie to watch right now, which is super cool. It's like the only independent movie that's just making a ton of money at theaters, uh, which is super cool. If you go to Box Office Mojo, it's at the top of every chart. There's not a lot of money behind it, but it is the only movie making money right now, and it's super <laughs> exciting. That's really cool. And uh, uh, I think one thing that you and I were talking about a little bit was how uh, the cinemas are going to be opening up in July, hopefully. The, uh, even in the U.S., uh, I think it was NATO, which is the weirdest organization to release anything about movies, uh, <laughs> decided to announce that they're expecting that 90% of all movie theaters in North America are going to be open by July 17th, which is the opening release date for Christopher Nolan's Tenant movie. Uh, super exciting, super, super exciting, uh, because I even looked at the release schedule before that, and there's a couple of bigger movies, but the only movie to come out after Tenant, the week after, actually, is Disney's Mulan on July 24th. Are, are they going to go with Mulan, though? I, th- I, th- I think they will, because they've already pushed it. They pushed it from That's March true. or April to July and what they're hoping is anyways is uh they've they've noticed that what they're thinking is that they want to shorten release windows for big tentpole movies and then move them straight to either video on demand or SVODs like Disney Plus or Netflix because yeah, like I think I think we saw that with um oh what was it Invisible Man and Trolls 2 and all that sort of stuff like the the the, the video on demand is is a clear quality option you go to you go to drive-ins right now. Trolls Two is one of the other tentpole movies that's playing right now. Oddly yeah. enough, tr- which and it's it's made money on SVOD. I don't because there's like the whole lucrative business of uh, distribution marketing and stuff like that. And they already had a huge marketing plan. It's kind of weird to see where the numbers lie, but they've seen that kid-friendly movies or family-friendly content has made a significant improvement on uh, how much income they can they can or revenue they can generate on an SVOD or just a, a video on demand service, like a, any rental house. So to see something like Mulan make like $50 million in two weeks domestically and maybe like $100 million worldwide, but then make $100 million in movie rentals and then go straight to Disney Plus as like an exclusive would be a smart move for them because then they don't lose any chips. Oh, they so. can make more money than that. Come on, it's wait, Disney. No, wait, no, 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 I know. Like it was a very highly anticipated film, but if if the numbers were stupid low like that, yeah, for yeah. a movie like that. They can still like make that, their money back at least. Oh, exactly. So that that was something that was kind of exciting. And I mean, one thing I, I, I keep just berating is that um because tenant is like the first major popcorn blockbuster an independent ip from a trusted director that has so much hype going into it that's not competing against a disney movie other than mulan the second week but no uh no avengers movies no superhero movies no star wars movies nothing at all like it is literally in prime summertime as everybody's going outside you're literally looking at something that could be like the armageddon of like this movie just becoming like the biggest box office success of 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 his career like it's very expensive to make but he is he christopher nolan has been like banging on people's doors and he's like i need you to see this movie like uncle is, sam is it going to be is it going to be the dark knight though i think isn't that his current top box office draw Dark yeah, Knight. It, Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rises are, are about a billion dollars, I think, yeah. or just above. I think it's like, I think Dark Knight Rises is like a billion, 40 million or something like that. So they're they're right on that one billion mark. So you think I know he's, it, could Tenet beat that without having the whole Batman name? Oh, totally. I totally, I, because he's, he's made a household name for himself. Dunkirk made several hundred million dollars worldwide. Uh, I don't know if he's it, made a house. I think, I think a lot of us uh, in the, uh, who are in the movie sphere 
tend to overestimate the the general population's knowledge of directors. No, 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 no. I I, I would say that, but he is few and far between. Like, I think he's only... I think he's pretty well. I think he's probably the most well known of like current directors. But I don't think he's more well known than like a Spielberg or a Scorsese. He's, maybe I I. I still think, like, a Scorsese in modern day, like, if you said, like, I mean, people our age, because, again, we're, we're talking about a completely different demographic, like, somebody, like, that in, like, their young adult lives. I know, f- speaking from experience, like, if my friends, there was, like, usually a group of eight or ten of us that would go to the movies, and they would go regularly just to see something because of, like, a, a trailer or a name or or because somebody had, like, some previous desire to see it because of like a video game adaptation or something but literally christopher nolan is one of the only names that ever comes up in that circle of talks it's like you'll hear a tarantino name you'll hear a spielberg name like you said but christopher nolan is one that i have friends that are not film junkies at all that will buy tickets months in advance they will purposefully even go to the special screenings and drive with me to like a like saga or something like that to go see like the 70 millimeter prints of them just Dang. because, yeah, like, ever since um, the Dark Knight movies, they've been on, like, the hype train. That's and that's true. 10 he, years. He did do, like, he's had some very, very big temple films. Like, I'm not saying he's not one of the most well-known directors. Mm-hmm. But I'd say he's at, like, a like a Wes Anderson level. Yeah. Yeah, right? no, I, I, I totally not, agree with that. not at, like, a, like, I think that the people... And maybe that could just be because, like, the people that you and I hang out with. But, like, I think if you ask, like, a general... Po- like, if I went to, like, one of my random aunts and uncles and went, ah. <laughs> yo, do you know who Christopher Nolan is? They'd be like, huh? But if I went, Steven Spielberg, they'd be like, ah, yes. <laughs> and then you're like, how do you remember Howard Hawks? And they're like, yes, I do, back in 1940. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but no, I, I, I do think, like... Like you said, like Wes Anderson, Chris Nolan, even Tarantino, like they're they're like those the oddballs where they've made enough of a name of themselves that like the younger demographic, like young adult demographic, are like I need to see this because I I, I recognize that name and they wait four years to see something, so yeah, it's like it, think, it's that anticipation. Yeah, and I think part of it is also because those three people have very distinct styles, like they are very much auteur. Mm-hmm. They make very much auteur cinema that mm-hmm. uh is distinctive to each one of them like like if you look at a wes anderson movie you go that's a wes anderson movie if you look at mm-hmm. a tarantino movie you go that's a tarantino movie um maybe visual style isn't necessarily always the same across nolan's movies although they mm-hmm. are quite similar but quite, yeah it's it's always the like playing with time and all that sort of stuff yeah and this seems to be i mean i hope probably his magnum opus of his Time-centered reality. Interstellar fever dream. was already enough of a clusterfuck for my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Man, there, there is, is so Zimmer many on moments, this? though. Uh, I don't know. I really hope so. Oh, I bet, I, I bet you he is, but I just don't actually. I haven't. One of the things when there's like a big tentpole movie like this that I do is I just go like, I know I'm gonna see it. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna take in all the hype because I just want to go see the movie. Yeah, I don't want to be I'm, influenced in my brain by like all the advanced reviews and the trailers and whatever. Like, I'm just like, it's a big Chris Nolan movie. I know I'm going to see it. I'll just go watch it and make my opinions then. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm I'm just excited because John David Washington's on it, and seeing him in Black Klansman to now, I'm like, man's blown up overnight. I swear. I mean, well, he's 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 been trickling through. Like, I think he started with his dad. Uh, in the early 2000s, but the last, like, three, four years, he's really hit a stride, and my goodness, he looks like he's going to have a lot of fun in this movie. (laughs) But uh, the only other thing I got going for film news, uh, super cool, uh, talking about uh, supporting the the people that that make the movies. You got uh, your boy Alejandro G. Inuritu. You're talking to another auteur, or auteur, uh, from I always uh, suck at pronouncing that. <laughs> yeah, same. From from Mexico, he's kind of made this like group of um, 
people that have created a, a fund for people that work below the line in the cinema industry. So if, if uh, anybody that's listening doesn't know what the difference between above the line and below the line is, uh, if you look at like a, a budget for a movie, above the line people are usually your top build cast, like your your stars, quote unquote, your director, uh, producer, writer, anybody that usually rakes in, quote unquote, again, the big bucks or that usually has the draw that like Hollywood usually has. Yeah, it's, so, the, people, it's the people who are going to get the royalties off the property. Yeah, anybody that kind of has like a, a name behind it or is going to be doing all the press junkets and stuff like that. Below the line people are like your daily workers, such as like your grips, your gaffers. Um, yeah, but there's a, there uh, are some technical, there there's some like head of departments, like a director of photography, your, yeah. um, your, your uh, set designer, your costume, all that stuff. It's also below the line, but... But you, you, they might still see something. But in essence, like, um, they they built this fund. Uh, I can't remember the name of it off by hand, but uh, it was posted on IndieWire, and then I went on to an article uh, where it came from. I think it was called El Universal, which is, like, uh, a Mexican a news outlet. And basically what they did was they pulled together some money uh, from very popular, well-known individuals, as well as I think some money from the government, they've put together about 10 million pesos so far, uh, because there are about 30,000 people in Mexico that work in below the line unionized positions. And they're going to be supplying, I think they said 500 people with 20,000 pesos, which is almost the equivalent to 900 US dollars to help subsidize not being able to work right now. And it, it's it's tough because it's a, it's 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 a lot of money uh and most people I think they said the statistic was 7 out of 10 people also have part-time jobs outside of working in the industry because if you work below the line there might be only so many months of the year or so many movies you can work on. So yeah, you're that's probably been a, that's been a problem in Toronto. I think I think in a place that isn't Hollywood, um, where you're not shooting year round, mm-hmm. that's always been a problem. Like that's been a problem in Toronto. That's been a problem in Vancouver. That's been a problem in Mexico. Um, I think unless it's like Atlanta or LA, I don't even know. I, it might even be a problem in New York per se because the yeah. weather, like people don't want to shoot during January. <laughs> No, yeah, right. And usually, usually they get paid well enough that they can. F- they the the rule is like people that work below the line in Canada, anyways. They get paid a premium. I mean, it's also expensive to live there, but they get paid <laughs> quite a lot, and they work a lot of hours. That you usually make a full time salary in like your eight or nine months of work, so you can kind of float for two or three months. It's like an extended vacation or your time when you go to Florida, like like the snowbirds do. Well, so. yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why the COVID crisis has hit so hard uh, the below the line workers in the film industry is because it, it, it hit just as all the seasons were ramping up. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know a mm-hmm. whole lot about um, the Mexican film industry, but I imagine it works in a pretty seasonal Similar. way yeah. as it does here in Canada because like all the budgets are released yearly and all that sort of stuff. So they plan like, okay, this is our 2020. This is what we're going to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they'll start shooting in like April or whatever, because that's when all the production's been started. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think Mexico also has the problem of like people, at least Hollywood only tends to shoot there when there's a reason. You know, yeah, what I mean? like cultural reasons. Yeah, like, like, like it's like an aesthetical purpose. Or... Like Toronto, Toronto and Vancouver benefit from the fact that they look like American cities. Mm-hmm. Right. So like people will shoot in Toronto because like oh it looks like an American city. Right, like mm-hmm. you can you can get away with it, and so whereas like you need to shoot Roma in the part of Mexico City, like the Roma area, because it is aesthetically like the the epicenter of the movie. Like it is, like yeah. it serves like I don't know much. Purposes. I don't know a whole lot about like the domestic um, programming and productions that happen in Mexico because I don't speak Spanish, <laughs> so it's a <laughs> bit that. it's a bit hard for me to watch that stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know what gets made, but Mm -hmm. it's a Hollywood kind of does have a a, a tendency of overtaking a lot of stuff. Like even like if we relate it to here in Canada again, like Canada's domestic production isn't enough to sustain all of the people who are working in the industry in in Canada. Mm -mm. And so we need we need Hollywood to do stuff. (laughs) 
Yeah. And if they're not, then we have a bit of a problem. And I, I imagine that it might not fully be the same way in, in Mexico, but it could sort of be similar. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, like you said, that's kind of where that statistic's coming from. So for those people that are like, that rely solely on this as like a career and aren't able to get another uh, a job in the meantime, or if production has been halted. Um, Cause again, I don't know what the state of affairs are based on like where their COVID stuff is at. There's at least some sort of a subsidy that's coming from the people that really appreciate the hard work that's being put into it. And it's their money coming back into the community. And they're like, we need to help the people that are helping us. So yeah, it's always, it's always been great to know that like, um, the the big three Mexican directors who've come out during the past 15, 20 years, they've always been trying to produce in Mexico and promote the arts, promote like, the, that's... like promote cinema as a, as an art form. They're like uh, Guillermo and uh, Inarutu and Cordon. They all, they all try their best. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, yeah, just to kind of top it off there, there was like a lot of very well-known, uh, Spanish-speaking uh, people that are quite famous in Hollywood now, like Sama Hayek and Gail Garcia Bernal, that are also a part of this fund that they've put stuff together and a few other producers. So, like I said, there's there's a lot of big names attached to it, and I'm sure there, there's going to be more money coming behind it soon. It's just a matter of, like, when and how and how they want to raise it and so fo- so on and so forth. Yeah. So uh, let's yeah. let's go a little bit farther into this. What, what, what do you got for uh, filmmaking news So there's a bit of news. It's not... It's not um... It's stuff that I've just been seeing around. It's not, like, breaking news. But, but, so, the most exciting news, um, and it's not super brand new news, but it's exciting news to me. Uh, and so, No Film School is uh, announcing it, and I think also uh, uh, News Shooter or something, that website, was announcing it. So, Ari, I know that mm-hmm. we talked about the Alexa in our first episode, because it was the 10-year anniversary. Mm-hmm. They're developing a new Alexa. It's not to replace the current Alexa series, but they're developing a new Alexa that is still a Super 35mm sensor, but it will be native 4K. Hmm. That's exciting. For any, just enlighten us for for a second here, uh, to anybody who doesn't know, what's what's the native... Uh, recording of, of their current Super 35 camera. So the current Super 35 camera is um, just above 3K. It's like 3.2, right? It's like 3.2 or 3.4K right now in the Alexa Studio and the Alexa Mini. Mm-hmm. Right? And then um, they've come up with the Alexa LF and the Mini LF and the Alexa 65, which gets you... So the LF gets you a full-frame sensor. And mm-hmm. then the 65 gets you your 65 millimeter equivalent, right? Mm-hmm. So the Alexa Mini right now can only do so. Its maximum resolution is 3,424 by 2202, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit bigger than your traditional three or four perf um, 35 millimeter film, and that's because it's a its native aspect ratio is four by three. And right. that's because if you have your 4x3 aspect ratio and you make it slightly bigger than your Super 35 sensor, when you down-res it to 1080p or 2K, you're oversampling the image, so you're getting a more uh, more quality in that image. And then also it gives you a lot more options in terms of if you have a larger 4x3, then when you go down to your cropped of your actual 4 per 35 mil, it just gives you more options to do... 239 or 185 or uh, anamorphic and all these other sorts of things. Right. And it just gives you flexibility. Yeah, and you can shoot open gate and get all of that information. But what's really exciting about this, at least to me, is so they want to update the sensor and have a Super 35-sized sensor that is natively 4K. So that option opens up a lot of options for people who still want to shoot Super 35, which is a, a super classic look. Um, if people aren't really sure what a Super 35 millimeter look is. It's most of your Hollywood films for like, what, 45, 50, 60 years? Pretty much any movie you've ever seen that wasn't <laughs> specifically like an IMAX movie is a Super 35 yeah. sensor. Yeah. Right? Like everything. <laughs> Literally everything. Um. So it's the classic Hollywood look is Super 35. And 
a lot of people still like to shoot that. And specifically now television is shooting a lot of Super 35. But a lot of television is now being produced by people like Netflix. Yeah. And Netflix yeah. Netflix is really stringent about their uh, technical specifications. And they want you to shoot native 4K. Yeah, I, I mean, they make the exception for the Alexa, but I mean, like... No, they yeah. only they, they made certain exceptions. So the Alexa LF and the Alexa yeah. 65 are allowed because they can shoot native 4K. And I think there has been one instance for the Ballad of Buster Scroogs where the Super 35 sensor Alexa was allowed to be used. And that's because go. it was the Coen brothers. Yeah, it's literally the Coen brothers. You, you, like, yeah, yeah. It's your A-team up there. And so this just, this just updates it so that they can have that sensor size in uh what they're doing right and so, so enlighten me for a second here though you're talking about how like their their current iteration of their super 35 runs like a four by three or like a slightly larger four by three sensor um are they doing that similarly for their new super 35 sensor yes yeah, so according to ari okay. the digital camera will feature a super 35 4k 4 by 3 sensor which is what they've okay. been doing across the entire lex range because it just gives you more flexibility yeah so they're just updating it so it just becomes more of like a, a workman's thing for streaming services basically yeah and so the the idea is that it's going to be in a similar size or very similar body to the current Mini LF, mm-hmm. which is their most popular model, I think, at the moment. Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting to see if they do release release a, a studio version of it, because the studio version is still quite popular. People don't really think about... Um, all they hear about is the Mini LF and how it's the small modular thing, but like the Alexa Studio is still a classic camera, and it's still used a lot it, in no, television it's, and like on... It's um, great. Yeah, like... Uh, Oh, what's that movie? Taika Waititi. <laughs> oh, JoJo? Yeah, JoJo was uh, an Alexa studio in 4x3 Open Gate, I believe. Right? And that's because, like, not all the time do you need this tiny camera. Sometimes if you're going to be on dollies and on tripods, have a big camera that has everything that you need built into it. Like, the Alexa studio has all of its wireless capabilities and video feeds and everything like that built into the camera. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing that's been really loved about that so i think it but i think having a, a, a an lf no a mini version of it is going to be really interesting to see how many people switch over because red's been kind of been able to have that like small size 4k package down pat because mm-hmm. like unless you're shooting in a large format so in full frame or in 65 you can't shoot an alexa camera on uh, Netflix, they won't let you. Right. Yeah. Right. So I, th- I think it'll be interesting to see how many people switch over because of as we as we have seen through cinema, the vast majority of people who are shooting just for the theatrical release choose an Alexa camera. Hmm. So, I I gotta I gotta hand it to Ari. They're so funny because people are like, we love you, we worship you, and they're like, no no, let's make it easier for you to shoot. Let's make it more fun for you to shoot. They're like, we love you, we love you. And they're like, no no, let's do it again. Let's make it easier and easier. And you're like, stop it. Well, like because um, Ari is they've they really value their customer base and the fact I think it's the fact that they they tend to go to rental houses. So, like, Red tends to make, or more so than Ari, makes equipment and stuff for the consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, other than the Mini, the Mini, because the Mini they started selling to consumers a lot, but, like, like literally with the Alexa S65, the super large IMAX camera, you can't buy that as an individual. You can only buy that if you are a studio or you are a rental house. Right. Right? Because that's... Ari's market and just they do smart things like that that works for their customer base and their customer base is really traditional people who know what they're going to do so like with their signature primes that just came out which were uh, used for 1917 they knew their customer base they were like our customer base doesn't care if the 20 millimeter lens is the same size as the 185 millimeter lens even though it's a smaller lens per se what they care about is that they're all the exact same size so that when they go to swap, they don't have to move any of the gears that they've been using for aperture and focus control. 
mm-hmm. and they don't have to change any of the ba- and they want it to all be the same weight so that they don't have to change any of the balancing on whatever system they're set up on right like yeah, they understand they, that they're targeting a market that is working within a a a, a system and a framework where it's like cool the camera operator for an Alexa camera most of the time isn't going to be on their own, right? They're going to have an assistant or a second AC or a trainee or somebody with them to help operate the camera. And they're probably going to have certain other things with them. Mm-hmm. Or they're going to they're, they're gonna have all these modular things attached to it that they need all the hands and they just need to have it, it, like you said, like it's going to be like a large set, almost guaranteed. Yeah, whereas, so, and I think that's why like in terms of for documentary filmmaking, one, they have a completely different camera for documentary making. They have the Ari Amira. They don't, mm-hmm. and they, it's a different sensor. It's a different workflow. It's a different system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as you see, like in that world, people tend to go for reds or go for cannons. Like the C300 has been a workhorse of documentary filmmaking for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, even like it's been Oscar-winning documentaries, like that uh, the National Geographic one a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, actually, I think for a number of years, um, a lot of Oscar award-winning um, documentaries have been shot on it. So, like, you have Cartel Land. You do have, um, yeah, the National Geographic one about Alex Honnold, who, which name I cannot remember right now because I'm terrible at remembering movie names and people names. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, so that's just the exciting news that we have going on right now. Well. And I think that'll be interesting to see. I think you could be interested in that because, like, it it just opens up more options for filmmakers. And I wonder if Red's stranglehold on Netflix productions right now is just going to go whoop. Whoop. It it, it could change. It could change. Uh, It's one of those things where it's like only time will really tell, eh? But. Yeah. Um. I mean, you always have those sticklers that are love their reds, like Fincher and and a few others. But I don't understand Fincher's love of red, but whatever. Well, just wait till Mank comes out for Netflix and uh, see how that looks. So, uh, I, anyway, I always thought it was interesting how much Fincher has produced for Netflix. Yeah, I mean, he's like one of their top tier producers. Yeah, do, but you also just don't hear about him all the time. But he's he's got his hand in a lot of cookie jars. He does. So. All right, before we. I think we're going to move on to talk about Just Mercy, right? Just yeah. Mercy? Starring... Here. Uh, what, what have we got? Starring... Uh, oh, god damn. Why am I... Honestly, <laughs> so bad with names. Dude! Michael B. The, Jordan. The, no, the basketball player from the Chicago Bulls, the Michael Jordan. Oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, uh, directed by uh, Destin Daniel Cretton. Yeah, that's a that's a weird name. No offense, I I it's, it's a almost a tongue twister to say. Like he goes by Destin Cretton or Daniel Cretton at times, but like Daniel Destin Cretton. Like I I actively have to catch my tongue to say that without screwing up. It is it, it it's not an easy name to say for some reason. All right, all right. So so we watched this movie. Yeah. Uh, you watched it about a week ago. I watched it last night, but we've mo- both made some notes, but we haven't talked to each other about it. Not really. No, no. no. So what are your thoughts? Thoughts? Well, uh, a little bit to unpack. I'm starting to see that we just keep watching these emotionally draining films. <laughs> <laughs> My goodness. First it was lying, now this. But no, um, the first thing that really caught me off guard, uh, the first scene... Uh, in which he talks to the inmate, uh, I the 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 interaction between the first guy was so ambiguous to me until he kind of reveals that he was like, "This is the greatest news I've heard because then I can see my family." I was like, "This is going to be a movie that's going to tear me to pieces." I know that for a fact. Um, and the other thing that really struck me off guard was uh, when they first introduced where Michael B. Jordan's character was going. Uh, and they were like, he's going to Monroeville. And I was like, isn't that to kill a mockingbird? Like, I, I immediately picked up on that. And then they harp on it all the time. And I was like, this is so weird. And then you can see the irony. Well, I think they that, harp that on really it. They harp the on story. it for a good reason, I think. Oh, yeah, no, no. Like, it totally makes sense. But there was a few other similarities. Like, I, I did some research on it just to kind of make sure that my facts were straight. Because I was like, this 
I don't know if there's any other key similarities, but in the the book To Kill a Mockingbird, there's a, a Sheriff Tate who is actively trying to make sure that uh, the Tom Robinson, I think his name is, or the Robinson, the guy that's being tried, uh, just goes to jail. He's like the dirty cop in, in, in the book. Um, and in the movie, it's Sheriff Tate as well. And I'm like, that that's a weird coincidence if his name in real life is also Sheriff Tate. Like, they're both dirty cops, like 50, 60 years apart, based on fictitious or factual events in both instances, kind of because it was kind of semi-autobiographical for, like, To Kill a Mockingbird. And then this story was mostly based on on, on true fact about the, the attorney. It was actually written by uh, Michael B. Jordan's character. Like, the book is based off of his recount. So, um, a lot of a lot of really weird stuff. Not weird, but, like, a lot of really interesting, like, deep, uh, pertinent things to what's going on right now in, in the South, but also some really cool things that that attorney ended up doing, which was really cool. Yeah, so. I, I wouldn't even say just the South. I would say that um, I think this is possibly a story that's kind of happened a lot throughout the history of America. Like you yeah. can say that it happened in the South, but then you can also look at like New York city and the state and the story of hurricane. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, who I can't remember the actual name of that boxer, <laughs> but oh, uh, the boxer hurricane who was going for like a, a, a belt and was arrested mm-hmm. for a crime that he totally didn't commit. <laughs> And was also a, a movie with uh, Denzel Washington in 1999. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, um, so Before, be, yeah, before well, I... There's just... Sorry. There was just a couple other things that really took me off guard. Uh, and I don't know if you picked up on them. You know, so there was three inmates, right? So there was our, our guy, uh, Jamie Foxx. Then there was his buddy, Hubert, to the left. And then to the right, there was that other guy who was a little bit pudgier. Did you recognize who that was? He looked familiar, but I I don't know who he is. That's Ice Cube's kid. That's O'Shea ah, Jackson Jr. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yes, that was that was really cool because I was like, I that also like struck me off guard. I was like, I think I know this guy, but I think I don't know if he put on no offense. I think he put on a couple pounds or something, but or I'm just not used to seeing him kind of like sitting like he he was only ever in one location like the duration of the film and uh the other guy my goodness gotta go through my notes here but what's his name ralph myers so the guy that had the the weird lip thing who didn't like the smell of bodies yeah he had the burn scars do you know who that was again looked familiar did not know Tim Blake Nelson, my guy, who's like in a couple of Coen Brother movies, like Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And stuff. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And he was Buster Scruggs in the movie Buster Scruggs. <laughs> so yeah. crazy, crazy transformation there. I was like blown away. I thought, I honestly, seriously thought that they casted somebody that had like a slight speech impediment or something. And I was like, No, nah, man, he he just killed it. Like he did a really good job. Yeah, um, yeah he did do a very good job. Yeah. Uh, also, Michael B. Jordan was a producer on the film. Yes, really he cool. was. Uh, and Daniel Destin Cretton, um, people might remember him because uh, his college thesis film when he was in film school was Short Term 12, which was adapted into a, his first feature. Uh, and the short film um, brought to the career or brought the career of Lakeith Stanfield into the limelight, who's become super famous. Oh, okay. And, and Brie Larson. And Brie Larson has been in all of his movies yeah. since, including The Glass Castle and uh, Just Mercy. And now he's got a Tokyo Vice TV show that he's working on. Also, he's worked with the same DP, very, very similar crew for the last few films. So but anyway, I don't know if you want to go into the film a little bit, uh, anything that kind of caught you off guard or you want to break it down a little bit. Cause I know there's lots of cool stuff, especially like the frame within a frame sort of imagery here. Right? Yeah. Yeah. There was a ton of, uh, frame within a frame, which I think was really, there is, there is parts about this movie and this might sound like a criticism, but it's also, it was what the movie was going for where I yeah. thought it could have pushed more. You know what I mean? Like, it could have pushed uh, more visually in the the feelings of 
being trapped, the feelings of being encaged. Because there were so many shots where the master or or there would be a close-up or something which was like framed within the bars or like through the tiny glass of like one of the heavy doors yeah and i almost feel like they could have played more of the scenes in that yeah yeah um but then i think that also gets away from the goal of the movie and i think the goal of the movie was to tell a piece of history that isn't told Right. Right. And so, like, if you look at this movie and you compare it to To Kill a Mockingbird, the movie, mm-hmm. they're shot very similarly. And their yeah. goal is very similar. And and mm-hmm. I think it did a really good job of making it a quality Hollywood style looking movie. And and I think that's almost the goal. Like if you made it to um if you made it too artistic, too cinematic in that regard, it could push people away to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, like, a movie that I was comparing it to... Well, it, 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 it brought up allusions to, in my mind, is the Steve McQueen film Hunger. Okay. Right? Because it's another film about imprisonment and such. Although that movie takes place almost exclusively within the prison in Northern Ireland. Um but that film is a far more like grounded no i wouldn't say grounded i would just say more expressionistic okay. style of shooting okay right like the 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 cinema the cinema yeah, the the cinematography <laughs> is a lot more purposefully artistic okay right i think one thing that happened to me during watching this movie is that i forgot about it which i think is the goal yeah, I think the it, goal it, it, for this movie was like, we don't want you to be hung up on any of the technical aspects. We want you to be fully drawn into this story mm-hmm. um, and this struggle and understanding the feelings of these people. And I think they did a really, really good job of that. I, and I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to play off that for a second as well. Like, I mean, I felt very similarly with like Michael B. Jordan's performance. There were, there were a lot of times where I'm like, I'm watching him talk one-on-one with somebody and I'm like, he doesn't stand out to me like an attorney in other films where they have like this, like this crazy charisma. Like, you go go to a film like uh, A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. Yeah, he's you don't like, have. The, there was no like anger. There was no punch. But I think that was kind of the, the point. But that's that, yeah, it's also the point. And I'm like, I, I have this. I have a little bit of a divide there because I'm like, again, you're playing it. It's not safe, but he's playing it almost realistically yeah and that kind it it propelled it in its own way but i'm also like it doesn't feel like a movie like like you said it's it's trying to be trying to be like a part of history it's trying to tell it in like a very organic way without overstepping itself and by doing that you're kind of losing these almost like taking away from the tropes that you're used to yeah like so um going back to that scene where he meets the first death row inmate I remember yeah. I wasn't I wasn't blown away by the cinematography. The thing that blew me away was the sound. Yeah. And one, it's it's very quiet. There's not a whole lot of ambience. There's not a whole lot of BGs in that track. But it's the something that I think that gets overlooked a lot in in filmmaking is the quality and the tonality of voice. Right. Because that's something that does get played with. Um, that sound either has to be crafted on set or altered afterwards and it's just like the especially in the close-ups it just felt like it felt like you are hearing the voice like from like inches away from from them like you were so close and so present with their voice mm-hmm. and like especially in that scene the two characters talk very calmly and very openly and very softly and i think it's just a way that you get drawn into these characters um and you feel comfortable with them. Very comfortable. Well, and that's right? the thing. After after their immediate introduction to one another, the first thing they start talking about is how they were like basically the same person. They're like, yeah, we went to church choirs. They're like, they're they're so buddy buddy. And I feel like you you have that connection to those characters as they have to one another. It's as if you're literally with them. So yeah, yeah. And like, I think I think the sound is something that really really does that. Is like there's not a whole lot of things getting in the way of what you're hearing. You're really, Mm. really present with them. And it's really 
soft and gentle. And I think something that, and I think that's something that, that's coming from the point of view of the story that they're trying to tell. And like, you can't watch this movie, I don't think, and get away from the fact that they're trying to tell a black person's story and a black person's uh, challenges and trying to overcome that. And Mm -hmm. I think the fact that it's being told from the black perspective is why you have that. I think if you had a different, if you were telling it from a different perspective or you were um, a different filmmaker, you wouldn't treat it like that. Cause like a lot of the time, stereotypically in films, black people are presented as like either big and strong or angry or something like that. And like you have Michael B. Jordan being this really soft spoken guy most of the time, even when he's angry, like it's even very referenced. Calm. Yeah, it's even referenced by the people, like, by the family of his clients and stuff like that, where they're just like, well, this guy doesn't look like he's going to fight. He isn't, like, angry. (laughs) Right? And I think... (laughs) Yeah. But that's... Well, one, I think the reason why he is successful in the end is that he's he's, he's not, like, lashing out. He's just persistent as hell. (laughs) Um, He is one stubborn dude. I love it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. It's great. And I think also just, like, I think there's a lot of, like, also in the way that, like, the the audio that they use then on the chief and on the district attorney and, like, the way that those two guys talk as well. Like, the district attorney always looks like he's trying to, like, I think that was a really, really good performance. Like, I'm not familiar with the actor, but, like, the way that he speaks, it's always like he's trying to speak so quickly that the other person can't get in what they're trying to say. As you were saying earlier, like the allusions to To Kill a Mockingbird, I think are, I'm not fully aware with the, the true specifics of the real story, which I think mm-hmm. is also a bit of a shame. Like, I think, I think this is something that should be told. Cause like we all, even here in Canada, we have to read To Kill a Mockingbird in high school. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's a fictional story or well it's presented as a fictional story whereas this is a real story this actually happened Uh, yeah and I think it's interesting that like so much of it happened very similarly to how that fictional story happened but we don't get told about the real story we get told about the fictional story and I think that's also like you can tell from like the people in the town like when he's uh sitting there at the waiting to have a meeting with the DA and the secretary's like, Oh, have you gone to the Mockingbird house? And it's like like the people in this town kinda go like, Oh, well this this story happened here. Cool. It's done. We've solved racism. <laughs> yeah. Without that realizing was, that, that what my... they're doing is exactly what the bad guys in To Kill a Mockingbird are doing. And I think that this is a good story because it kinda helps like uh, it helps people learn that, like, oh wait, this is still happening, and yeah. like, and like everybody in that town is complicit to some extent because they just said, didn't she, care. She, yeah, she said that line, and I literally smacked my face so hard, and I looked out the window and on the TV, and I was like, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's like, I think there's a lot of really good moments like that as well. Like, uh, there's a there's a conversation that. Uh, Michael B. Jordan and Brie Larson have again I'm terrible with character names uh, oh, okay. they're having at uh, the water in the morning I think and it's just the two of them talking and Michael B. Jordan's like yeah nobody here's talking about the fact that like the boats used to come up here and they would parade the slaves up this road <laughs> nobody's yeah. talking about that nobody's talking about all of this stuff that was made on the back of slaves it's just oh nope that's in the past we can't we can't talk about that and that's taboo and it's it's done it's over with it's a closed book and you're like but it's not you're still you're still doing it and it to a, a different it's just times have changed and the way you're doing it has changed yeah and i think there's a lot uh one thing i loved because it's just good quality filmmaking uh was so he gets into the town so he's on his way he's driving down the town and there's the shots of uh Michael B. Jordan, and he's kind of got a more concerned look on his face. And then he's driving past all the front lawns in the white neighborhood. Yes. And all the houses are very nice, and they all look really nice. And it's like kids, kids playing. playing and mowing the lawn and sitting having a beer and all that sort of stuff. And then the first time he goes to visit um, 
Jamie Foxx's family, and he's doing the same drive. It's the same thing. Like, uh, it's a good use of montage, like the editing and the the frames to tell a story, because mm-hmm. it's direct contrast. Well, it's 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 purposefully trying to trigger your brain to go like, "Hey, this looks exactly like the thing that you had previously seen, but spot the differences." Mm-hmm. Right, and the differences are. Oh, but the people are doing the same things, but they're in a very different environment because of it. Like, and that's the difference. Like, the houses are a lot more run down. It's in a part of town where the roads aren't even paved. Um, But they're still playing outside and mowing the lawn and having beers. (laughs) Yeah. Right? And it's like, and I think one thing that happens a lot, like, especially with um, the character who initially had framed him. And, like, part of what Michael B. Jordan's trying to do is go, like, yo, you have far more in common with this person than you do with the people you're trying to help. Yeah. He's like, he has kids. He has a wife. He has literally the exact same things you're doing, and he's been put to the same sentence that you were in, but he just wasn't given a choice. Well, like, and and, and even also, like, like, the... Oh, he had he was poor and had to work really hard and was like put through foster care and like had been oppressed by people, right? Yeah. But he has that in common with Michael Fox's character. No, not Michael Fox. Jamie Fox's Jamie character. Fox. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> versus like the the rich boozy district attorney who's living in his like southern plantation style home. Yeah. Right. And I think yeah. I don't know. I think this is just a really good way to humanize everybody in the story and showcase a lot more of the subtle ways. Cause it's also really interesting because the people who are being racist in the film don't think that they're being racist. Not, not for a bit ever in time, but and they that's... are. And oh, I think completely. that that's something that like, like you and I are two white boys. And I think that's something that kind of hits at us. It's like, Oh, there are probably a lot of times where we don't think we're being racist, but we might actually be being racist. <laughs> Yeah, And I think that's something that we have to grapple with and also like that's something that this is trying to teach us. And I think that it's a, it's a really good film in that regard. And yeah, I think the messaging of the film is, is great. I think the filmmaking is also really quite good. Uh, yeah. I, yeah. Really good use of, of visual storytelling and montage and stuff to really get across the message. It's, it's to me a really good case of like the power of cinema and film as as a teaching tool and as a as a way to help people learn and i think like this is the kind of film that get made that gets made a lot but it's now really interesting to have it from that perspective and yeah, where where the message is is quite clear and also like is very effective in what it's trying to to do. And it's something that again, what I, I can't speak on the Glass Castle because I don't really know too much about it. But if you watch Short Term Twelve, it's a lot of dealing with people that work at like a. It's almost like a halfway home for like foster children, but it's like until they become of age. It's, it's like for people that don't want to, children that don't feel comfortable living at home or need to take time away from living at home or don't have parents, but when they turn of age at like 18, they can, they can, they're legal adults, so they can do whatever they need to or whatever they want to. So, and it deals a lot with like uh, mental hardships and stuff like that. And it's shot so much with like uh, very, um, like a handy cam look so that you kind of, get into the, like the the very nitty-gritty of where people are living and how their situations are and it, it, I think Cretton has kind of come up with this style even if he changes like the fluidity of the camera and, and different things he's very he's got a very distinct POV on how to tell people's stories or tell things that probably people don't necessarily want to talk about or feel the need to talk about even though they're very important to society and they're they're quite prevalent between like it almost universal in at least in North America like in any city this is something that you could put on and you're like people understand it like this is like yo 
it may not be like groundbreaking, but like this is something that will actually catch your attention and realize that something's wrong. <laughs> yeah, so. I I like that it's very in the it 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 really understands the point of it. Like he understands exactly. the point of what the story is trying to tell. I think mm-hmm. like one thing, and like what I said earlier with my gripe was like, oh, I feel like this could have been like. Like, I feel like there were parts in the film where it did have that really, like, hand cam, um, like, handheld camera, close-ups, bit, yeah. really shadowy images and stuff like that. Like, I think the low-light work here was really, really good. Um, mm-hmm. But it's also just, like, I like to me, in my personal taste of, like, what I want out of a movie, that's what I would like to have seen more of. So, like, mm-hmm. when I... Uh, a movie that this is also kind of similar to is uh, Beale Street, if Beale Street could talk. Yeah. Because it, 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 it's not exactly the same, but it deals with some different, um, some similar issues. And But that movie is so hyper-stylized in, in its visual imagery, and I love it. <laughs> it looks oh, yeah. beautiful. Like Low-key, Beale Street got totally hosed at the Oscars that year. It got nothing. It got nothing when it should have gotten... It, it, at least it should have gotten a Best Picture nomination. There was something that I remember that year that got a Best Picture nomination. And I was like, why the hell did that get a Best Picture nomination over Beale Street? Because Beale Street was yeah. way better. You're, yeah, you're talking about the guy that made Moonlight, where there was like this incredible narrative where uh, there was the whole Oscar... Uh, where they announced the La La Land thing, and then Moonlight ended yeah. up winning. And it was, it was like... it was. Not necessarily the front runner for a lot of people, but also was like the smallest budget, was the hardest to make. It really showed the the true test of what people go through to get like independent stories made. It showed something of a minority within a minority, like a, a, a black gay boy coming out in the, in the projects in Florida, uh, and really like you saw like these these total twists and turns of this person who grew up to be the, this crazy like like gold teeth grill wearing dude who like probably sold drugs on the street but he, and he was still this broken boy at, at the end of it all but and to follow that up with something like Beale Street which was written by James Baldwin one of the most prolific uh, African-American authors in in the United States in the 20th century who had such a strong voice and and put it in like a a surreal, beautiful, I think it was what, it was uh, a suburb of New York and to have it like hyper stylized, but to tell like a, a similar engaging story of someone that had been mistreated uh, and to deal with the same hardships where it was like, oh, she's quite young. There was this pregnancy to deal with and an absentee father, but absentee not because he wanted to be, but because he was lost in the system because that's just, it was his skin color. And that's something that was any, and, and, and they couldn't fight it. They just couldn't fight it because well, like they the, tried the to and it just it, every time it just didn't work. It just, yeah. And it was, it's a sad movie, but yeah. again, it just, it's, it's, it deserved a lot more praise than I think it got. Yeah, I'm looking in here. Oh, yeah, like one that I thought, like Green Book ended up winning, and I feel like yeah. Beale Street probably should have been there instead of Green Book. Could <laughs> like have. if you're talking about like, oh, Green Book is in there as like a black person's story or something like that, like freaking Beale Street is a much better representation and is a mm. better movie. <laughs> yeah. But no, nah, but uh, yeah, the reason why I compared to that is like, one is super hyper stylized, and I feel like that's almost why if Beale Street could talk didn't get a ton of um like uh a ton of wide release and a ton of wide praise. Like uh, Regina King did win Best Supporting Actress for it, but at the right. box office, it only raked in twenty million dollars, right? And it well, it was probably a very similar. Um, budget as well, right? So it probably it, it just didn't see the same success as other films did. Yeah, whereas Just Mercy, just checking it up now, got in $50 million at the box office, which still isn't yeah. even a whole lot of money. Um, and like it kind of gets you to wonder, and it's like, well, wait, what would have happened if this movie was about a white person? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, Cause... and it, 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 was, it was strange too. Like, I mean, you go back six months ago, um... 
I, I'm really happy Parasite won at the Oscars, but you're talking about Just Mercy. There was a, there was a few people that were really pushing for Jamie Foxx to get a supporting nod. He was good. Um, he was very good. He was very good. Uh, and again, I mean, you look at like most of the supporting cast and Michael B. Jordan as well. Very great. It was one of those movies that probably could have been put on the list of at least one or two categories across the board that would have would have um, at least just some sort of like representation for it. And I think a lot of people were surprised that it just didn't really show up anywhere. But there was also there. It's weird. This year was weird. It was it was very weird. It was like they put like four movies into like every category, and you're like, okay, deservedly so, yes, but like not necessarily like the front runners. And a lot of people thought that this year was cut and dry. For anybody that actually cares about the awards, because I know there's a lot of people that are like, oh, awards are dumb. They, they, they can be important. Well, um, they're important because they get people to go out and see your movie and give that type of movie and that type of um, story a lot of credit. Exactly. Like, how many people really knew about Moonlight? Like, how much of the wider audience really knew about Moonlight before it got its award uh, recognition? Exactly. And then afterwards, it just blew up. Yeah. Blew up. Huge. I mean, it, it, I think it was quite popular at, like, the festival circuit. You're talking, like, TIFF and, and Venice, like we've mentioned a couple of times before. But never was it quite, like, the explosion as it was until after everything had happened. Yeah, but, like, but, it, you can you can do your, your festival run and stuff like that. But movies die in festival runs, like, where they just constantly go through festival runs and don't really see a whole lot of play outside of that. But, like, mm-hmm. Moonlight had a, a $65 million box office. Which for Huge. a film of that size and that type of story that came out and did the, like, it was premiered at Telluride, right? Frick yeah. Like, like, like <laughs> what other films premiering at Telluride have a $65 million budget? No, a uh, box office. Like, yeah. Yeah. none? <laughs> but yeah, no, I think, yeah. I think Just Mercy's a really good job at, it, 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 it fully accomplished what it was trying to do as a movie. I really enjoyed it. I think there were some technical aspects that, could have been more artistic if that's what they wanted to do, but I don't think that was what they were trying to do. Yeah, I totally like agree like with as that. a movie, what it was trying to do, what it wants to do. I'm gonna give it like like a like a seven and a half or an eight. Like it's a good quality movie, and like out of my enjoyment, I think I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed Lion. I, I was I more totally... drawn into the story to this than I was to Lion. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty much on par with you there. Like again, talking about like technical ability, like solid eight yeah like, like it, it does exactly what it was trying to do there's no faults that i can see in it like uh there were some scenes that to me felt a little out of place because they didn't do them enough like there's the scene where he's getting strip searched when he first goes to the prison and i really yeah. really like that scene um but i wish they played more of the scenes like that i think a lot of it was very traditional two-handers mm-hmm. but the traditional two-handers got you into the emotion let the actors act and let you forget about the fact that you're watching a movie and just get overwhelmed by by the story so yeah yeah no no i totally agree like i and yeah personal enjoyment i liked it more than mine uh i think it's because it was a little bit more cut and dry and it it took its time and every moment to try and get you emotionally invested into what was going to be happening next. And even with a what was it, a two and a quarter hour runtime? It was two and a, a quarter hour. Two and a quarter it hour didn't, with credits. It felt like a ninety minute movie. It that's the thing. It 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 didn't it didn't drag. Like it yeah. was pretty. It was very well paced, and you came out of it, and you're like really good story like i i was a little skeptical like whenever i start a movie and i'm like it's gonna be two or three hours i'm like i i know i can buckle in and have a good time with it but movies that really know how to pace themselves i feel like we should have a conversation on that sometime um (laughs) yeah yeah because it's it's very it's very important um anything that really um exceeds the the regular runtime like the hitchcockian sort of like principle where it's like the movie should not be any longer than the time somebody needs to go to the bathroom like that's uh like you get a two and a half hour movie that feels like 90 minutes it it it, it was it was nice yeah, it, like there was the, no time i was like i need to i need to t- i need to stop i'm gonna be bored like it was really good yeah the pacing was really good i think i think one thing that this 
movie really really gets help from is the the plot i think the fact that it it, it does a really good job of really getting into the characters but having that plot to drive the story yeah like to really keep the pacing and you're always just like ah but if they do this or if they do this and there's there's that constant train chugging along you're not yep feeling like you're sitting there waiting for something to happen yeah but you're still not missing out on the the characters that are in the film yeah and uh i mean for a courtroom drama there really i if 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 you even want to call it that there really wasn't that much in the courtroom yeah it was it was more dealing with the people in in the in the confinement or it was dealing with the families and trying to get the facts straight yeah and i think i think that's another good reason of like what how it was made it's like if you're told the story because like you have to read the book or if you're told the story like you would go okay it's a courtroom drama and then you'd shoot like a big 30 minute long sequence in the courtroom right but cover it from all sides and try and get people's pov as they're like oh something misleading has come out from 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 all the 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 stuff but instead they spent the time to go like oh uh, the back black people were misrepresented they were told to sit outside and they got shafted by standing in the back of the room that's a super important detail that was really emotional and it took two seconds to tell and that was more emotionally gratifying and and really got you invested in what was trying to happen in the story than spending 20 minutes circling around the whole room with the camera yeah and i think i think maybe maybe that's a a a stylistic thing that's coming about because again if i think back to uh if you think back to beale street or if you think back to say another movie like um marriage story has a big has a bigger courtroom scene as well which is when they're going yeah. over the divorce. But that's like what, maybe 5 minutes long? Yeah, and again, that's just that's just tensions escalating cuz they're yelling at each other. <laughs> yeah, but like like but everything has been done beforehand, right? Mm-hmm. Um which I think is really important to do. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I don't know. It was a pretty cool movie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I really enjoyed it. Um we don't have a movie for next week, do we? We haven't picked one yet. Okay, so there's one that I've been wanting to watch for a long time, but I haven't been able to find it. A Separation. Oh! That would be really good, because I've only seen the first two minutes of that movie, and that movie was cool. Same, like, I've only seen the first little bit, because I was shown it in, oh. uh, in a class once, and then ever since then I've been like, I want to watch this movie. A married couple are faced with the... You know what? I'm not even going to read it, because that, I, I just want to be totally blown away when I watch Have this. You, do you not know what it's about? Don't say anything, because I don't remember it. I mean... <laughs> Judging on the, the the title, I feel like I can gather some information, but I don't want to extrapolate too much because I'm going in pretty dry on this. So all I'm right, excited. All right. Well, watch A Separation. It won uh, Best Foreign Film at the Oscars that year. So it's a good Exciting. Movie. Very exciting. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea how long this podcast is. It's probably longer than we... Every time we're like, oh, we got to make it shorter. And then we just keep on talking. <laughs> Right, you got some interesting things to talk about, though. That's for sure. Yeah, so. we've had some interesting stuff to talk about. Interesting movies to talk about most of the time. Yeah. So well, I think a separation is going to be an interesting movie. Yeah. Well, with that being said, we should probably yep. sign her off, baby. Thanks for listening to the Popcorn Pillow Talk podcast. <laughs> Giggling. <laughs> uh, yeah, watch the separation for next week. If you want to uh, tell us your views, uh, I just realized we keep on asking people to tell us what they think. Uh, we don't have any way of them contacting us. We should set up an Instagram and a Twitter, and such. Yeah, we can we can do that. Uh, I think the the uh, anchor bio that uh, is listed has uh, our website posted to it, the anonymous bat website that we work with, but. And you can always send a message through that if you find yourself on a rabbit hole one night <laughs> for the three people that are currently listening. But um, yeah, yeah, no, if uh, we'll, we'll probably be making some more social media so that people can keep up with us, which would be really exciting. So. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for listening. Anyway. Have a good one. Take her easy, guys. <laughs>